Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I'm really looking forward to speaking with Cameron Stout about imposter syndrome. Cam's a former securities litigator and current mental wellness advocate and coach with a special interest in imposter syndrome. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Cam. Shelley, thanks so much. I'm very, very honored to be here with you today. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for being here. How about getting us started by introducing yourself and telling us how you became interested in imposter syndrome? I grew up in Berkeley, California, because because my dad taught English at Cal, and um, I went to Princeton University undergrad and got my law degree, my JD at University of San Francisco School of Law long ago. I'm not even going to tell you or your (laughs) listeners how long ago that was. If you want to go on my website, you will figure that out. My website, by the way, if you're interested in what I do is www.stoutheart, one word, stoutheart.org. Super. Um, I have suffered from depression and I'm also an alcoholic. Uh, if I get this far, I'll be celebrating my 10th year of sobriety in April of this year. Congratulations. Uh, those, thanks. Thanks, Shelley. Those mental health disorders have plagued me all my life as they have, seems like most of the people on my dad's side of the family And uh, I've been through two big depressions. Uh, The first was in 91. The second, which was much more major, was in 2013. In between those two events, I uh, built uh, with a great group of other people in a boutique law firm. Uh, I was part of a securities defense litigation group, and we defended broker dealers that got sued by their customers when they lost money investing. And I don't know what it's like up there in Canada, but... The states are a pretty litigious place, so mm-hmm. luckily for us, not for our clients, a lot of people sued when they lost money investing. And I uh, raised two kids in Marin County, and things were great until they weren't. In uh, 2012, my depression caught up with me again. I'd been on antidepressants. They stopped working. External stressors uh, also took their toll on me, and I had to be hospitalized for major depression, uh, but I came through the other side of that with flying colors and sober. And uh, so I decided about four years ago to stop practicing law altogether. And I now spend, I would say, 95% of my time when I'm not a deacon in our church, our Presbyterian church here in Princeton, New Jersey, where I live, I spend almost all my time doing what we're doing right now, uh, talking about mental health. Uh, talking. I do a lot of CLE talks around the country to uh, major law firms. um, And it's become a real calling for me. And uh, my message is very hopeful. Namely, there's so much hope for recovery if you stick to your guns and practice self-care. Today, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about imposter syndrome. And Shelley, you were right that I do focus on that. And one of the reasons is that I am a sufferer of imposter syndrome, so I, I know of what I speak. I think almost everyone does to some extent. I have found in the law firm particularly, and we can talk in a minute about why lawyers are particularly, at least in my view, susceptible to this loathsome 
thing. I think I mentioned it as a, a mangy stray cat that has followed <laughs> me for most of my life. And so that's what I'm all about. And it really is a, it's an amazing blessing. Someone once asked me, Shelly, at a, um, I was doing an MCLE in California where mental health substance abuse are required parts of the continuing le- uh, legal education CLE curriculum. And a very smart person in the audience asked me this question, Cam, if there had been a pill or some other cure for alcoholism and depression, and we all know that there isn't one, would you have taken that? And you would think that I would say automatically, well, of course, but I didn't. And the reason is that I have, this has really been a blessing to have these lived experiences to share. And I have found that when I share them, and I invariably do just that, that people talk to me about their own issues. And so many of us have mental health issues somewhere uh, between, you know, mild to severe I was at the severe end of that spectrum. Uh, And they want to talk about it. They want to share with me. And I am convinced that uh, the more sharing there is, the more ripple effects there will be and the less stigma uh, uh, there will be, the more this hateful wall of stigma will get knocked down and people will have the bravery to share and the bravery to get treatment when they need it. Absolutely. I just think it's so wonderful that you have been sharing so honestly your experience because it's so relatable. And as a result, I know that you've helped so many people already. So um, yeah, just wonderful. I wonder if we could go back a, a bit and talk more about imposter syndrome. You sort of mentioned it as if everybody knows what it is. And I think we kind of have a general idea just by nature of the word imposter, but I'm wondering if you could unpack that a little bit and um, maybe provide us with more of a working definition. Imposter, if one were to look it up in Merriam-Webster or whatever it is, it's basically pretending to be someone or something that, that you're not. And in the legal world, the imposter is pretending to be a capable, uh, fierce, brave, you know, uh, tough litigator. When deep inside, that person feels just the reverse. And this leads to feelings of of worthlessness, you know, the feeling of I'm a fraud. Mm -hmm. I snuck in the back door when the hiring committee wasn't looking, was was out to lunch. And um, I don't belong here with all these people. That's that's uh, working, uh, you know, (laughs) not exactly a clinical definition, but I think close enough for what we're doing today. Yeah. And for yourself, you said that that's sort of followed you around throughout um, your career or maybe even before. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I, I think that it's, I'm not sure I'm, I suffer from it any more than anyone else. Uh, but I can give you an example going as far back as, uh, as my time in college. It's mm-hmm. funny because I, I now live in Princeton, New Jersey, and I went to Princeton undergrad. And I came from California. I was, I, I uh, matriculated. Is that the word? I started in 1976. <laughs> and I'll, I was terrified. I, I you know, and, and so I, I walk in, there are all these seemingly confident, you know, worldly people, all these, these kids from prep schools. And, 
And I just remember being so intimidated as one guy in particular, a guy from Brooklyn, and he was captain of one of the sports teams. And I just thought, I'll never be this guy. So confident with women, et cetera, et cetera. And I've stayed friends with him. And we had lunch. He's up in New York. We had lunch three years ago. And I said, you know, you really intimidated me. And he said, are you kidding? You intimidated me. You you were the cool California. I played on the tennis team. You were the cool California tennis player. You know, you just seemed so loose and cool. Anyway, so, but I think we all feel that. And I sure did in any situation, law school, my first job, my second job, et cetera, et cetera, starting to do CLE work. I've now done, I don't know, 150 of of these talks. uh, And I'm very comfortable now. But boy, when I, when I started, I remember walking into a big conference room and there were 200 people there. And I thought, I don't belong here. I can't, I'm not a public speaker. I'm going to freak out. And um, I didn't. And so we'll get to this in a second. But one of the ways of fighting imposter syndrome is simply to do the thing you're scared of mm. and develop a track record that you can look back on and say, hey, I can do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, but still, you know, there are plenty of situations. I had to teach a class in, in our church here. I'm very new to um, the Presbyterian church. I didn't have any faith. Um, I was a shaggy atheist growing up in, in Berkeley, California. And um, as a result of these blessed experiences um, uh, with depression and frankly, with alcoholism, I attend an AA meeting just about every day by Zoom. It's in a Los Angeles, uh, but my faith has grown. Uh, but even then in the church, I've been asked to do various things and I felt the same imposter. It's like, I can't do this. I'm not religious enough. <laughs> so mm. That's why I talk about the, the mangy straight cat. Uh, right. I'm not a huge cat fan, by the way. Apologies to those out there in the ether who are. <laughs> um, but, uh, anyway, but I shouldn't diss cats. It's just followed me around a lot. Like a right. Show. Right, right. Yeah. And I'm wondering if it's something that you think, um, you know, lawyers tend to experience more of than other professionals. I think they probably do. It's a hard thing to measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've never been anything other than a lawyer. But I think probably the answer is yes. And here are the reasons. First of all, there aren't as many professions that are as adversarial as being a lawyer, whether you're a litigator, whether you're doing M&A finance, you know, doing deals sitting across the table from other you know, corporate lawyers, there's someone out there in the world, especially as a litigator, who's trying to make you look bad, yeah. who's trying to make you feel like an imposter and trying to beat you. It's a very, it's a very, very competitive profession. And we have, there's a lot of stress. There are several different, I mentioned the adversarial nature of our profession, the stress of billable hours. Uh, it really wears you down and makes you feel like an imposter as if you're not doing as well as your peers. And you're looking at the number of billable hours people are putting on their timesheets and it makes you feel as if you don't belong there. I'm an imposter. Uh, there are client expectations. And once when a client walks in the door with a case and you take that case on, I'm a defense litigator. So you're defending the case in a strange way. It becomes your problem, no matter how much the client 
may have made mistakes that lead to the lawsuit, you inherit that case and it's yours. And that's neat when you win the case because you feel like a winner, but I've lost my share of cases. When you lose one, you feel like a loser. People are pointing the finger at you and saying, hey, Cam, you lost that case. Not, hey, Cam, that was a challenging case. Anyone could have lost it. So that's another issue. Yeah, I think yeah. that younger lawyers have obviously a number of additional pressures uh, that can lead to imposter syndrome. One is obviously the pressure of making partner because law firms still, although I think it's getting better, many of them still follow the pyramid shape of what profits per partner look like and how they make money. So as you get higher up, up the towards the apex of the pyramid, there are fewer people. So there's it's it's hard to feel confident when the chances of your making partner aren't as high as they might be. Uh, I think another issue that younger lawyers have, especially is, and, and on big cases, is what I call pigeonholing and uh, low decision latitude. I mean, simply when one is a one of several different or maybe many different um, uh, associates on a big, big case, one can feel pigeonholed. Okay, Cam, you're in charge of document production on this aspect of the case, or um, you know, you're handling the legal research on this one issue of ratification, whatever it is. You don't get the chance to see the whole elephant of the case. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I, I've had several cases where uh, they were what's called product failure cases for broker dealers, where they, one of them was where one of our clients sold a bond fund that did really, really badly over time because it was loaded up with mortgage-backed securities just prior to 2008. So we had a very big team of lawyers, and I was fortunate to be one of the main people running it. And so we had a meeting of everybody every week, and so that everyone was up to speed on what was happening and understood that what they were doing on the case was very, very important for the big picture. But that doesn't happen enough. And so when you're not getting to see that, you begin to think, boy, I, what am I doing? You know, yeah. I'm just a cog in a machine. I'm just filling in this, this uh, cog here. And mm-hmm. so that's another issue. And I think yeah, that's that- such a good point because I think that can really lead to a sense of isolation and then, you know, that the rumination that could happen as mm. a result. Um, but one thing that you mentioned sort of at the beginning was what sort of triggered in me was this idea that, you know, imposter syndrome, if it's left unchecked, I imagine it could lead to burnout because I could see people just working harder and harder to prove, you know, their value or their worth to make up for what they think they lack and to sort of try to prevent anyone from exposing their, in quotations, fraud. So that, to me, I I wonder if that's one of the contributors to burnout. Those are good points, Shelley. It it can. One of the hallmarks of uh, imposter syndrome is both being a perfectionist, in other words, trying to fight the feeling of being an imposter, is to put perfection uh, to have that as your standard and also to work harder than anybody else. That pressure is there as well. And it leads to burnout and burnout leads to mental health conditions and the mental health conditions, uh, I don't 
don't know what it's like in Canada where you are, but I suspect it's not that different from here in the States where there's a study that was published in February of 2016 uh, that a friend of mine who's an extremely capable both lawyer and um, statistician, he ran a study of the American Bar Association and Hazelden and Betty Ford collaborated on it. And it was an anonymous survey of 13,000 lawyers uh, in 19 states. Are you familiar with this? I can list the stats very quickly. Yeah, I'd love to hear. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to get the reminder for sure. The results of what I'll call the Krill study were that, and bear in mind that these are people who were honestly filling out these, these uh, anonymous questionnaires. And the findings were as follows. One in five, and bear in mind, before I enumerate them, this is pre-COVID. So those numbers have obviously gone up significantly. And so pre-COVID, one in five American lawyers was a problem drinker. 28% had some level of clinical uh, depression. 19% had uh, some level of clinical anxiety. And the most stunning and, and frankly sad statistic uh, was that 11.5% of us had had some, some suicidal ideation. And that broke my heart partly, Shelley, because I, when I was at my lowest with this depression that I mentioned early on today, um, I had suicidal ideation. I never, I never had a suicide attempt, but I know that feeling of desperation, that feeling of I don't want to die, but I can't bear to live anymore. And we're seeing suicides in our profession. And it's a sad thing. And it doesn't need to happen. Yeah. Uh, and I have found much to my, I don't know if delight's the right word, but um, big law firms are paying attention to this. The people who hire me are very, very progressive about this. But um, again, the imposter syndrome it's all intertwined. It's not, uh, it's not an exact cause or effect. Um, imposter syndrome has not been classified, Shelley, as a full-on clinical mental health disorder in what's called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders. But it has been recognized by the American Psychiatric Association um, as a phenomenon that, and I'm going to quote for you here, is a very real and specific form of intellectual self-doubt. Imposter's feelings are generally accompanied by anxiety and often depression. Mm -hmm. So to me, that equates to a negative feedback loop. You're yes. feeling like an imposter <laughs> makes you depressed. Being depressed <laughs> makes you feel more like an imposter. And on down the downward spiral, you go. And I've yeah. been on that spiral. I know what that feels like very, very well. And I'm glad to be quit. Of, I'm glad to be quit of it. Very, very thankful. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could share with us some of the ways that you have found were helpful in dealing with or overcoming imposter syndrome. One of the things, yes, I will. One, one of the caveats I give when I start my talks, in addition to the fact that um, I, and I'll say this now to your listeners, um, I love speaking with people one-on-one -on -one, and um, I think they'll get my contact information, Shelly, um, somewhere in your podcast, but I welcome people to reach out to me if they just want to talk about these things one-on-one. -on -one. one of my caveats is, of course, I'm not a clinician, so I can't give any kind of medical or therapeutic advice. That's one of the caveats I give. 
The second is that um, I talk the talk a whole lot better than I walk the walk. <laughs> and so some of the things I'm going to say, these are the things I try to do to help me with my own imposter syndrome. And I do a lot of mentoring of younger lawyers. Um, I've been hired by a very large law firm as an independent contractor, mental wellness mentor. And so these are some of the things that I say when someone says, I just don't feel as if I belong here. In no particular order, what I try to do is literally take my, not literally, but figuratively, take myself by the scruff of my neck. And I get angry at myself. And I say, look, dude, you, meaning me, you didn't get here by accident. You didn't get here through luck. Cam, you didn't get through, you know, three difficult schools and have, you know, three very, very good jobs through luck. Luck doesn't work that way. It's binary. This is not the flip of a coin. And let's say you're about to walk into court or you're about to walk into a cocktail party or a reception or something. Any place like that can trigger imposter syndrome. The feeling when you walk in the door, it's a feeling of like being small like a little mouse walking into a cage with a lot of big predators everywhere. And I say to myself, you belong here with these folks. They hired you. You were hired into a very good law firm by a very discerning hiring committee or whoever it was that gave you your golden ticket to walk in the door. And you belong here. They saw in you moral character and strong, solid ability. I think another thing that's very, very important to bear in mind is that don't ever try to be the smartest person in the room because, A, there's only one of them. B, like some of the smartest people I've known, they're kind of jerks, at least they can be. So be yourself. In other words, be one of the authentically nicest people in the room. And that's easy because you are already a nice person. No one needs to train you to be yourself. And being yourself is more than good enough. And I have found, and one of the things, Shelly, that, that we were very focused on in the law firm where I was, it's called Kiesel, Young, and Logan. Uh, it's a West Coast firm. And one of the things we really focused on was making sure that we were nice. And I don't mean you know, kissing up and kicking down, I mean, being authentically nice to everybody. And mm. the success that you garner from that is mind-blowing. And by I mean success really in uh, the most balanced and mindful uh, sense of that often charged, charged word. Mm -hmm. um, so those are some of the issues I, I mentioned. I wrote a blog about this called... Um, uh, they like us just the way we are, based on Fred Rogers, one of my big heroes, um, <laughs> uh, who says, I like you just the way you are. So many kids need to hear that message. And um, if I had young kids again, I'd be playing them reruns, good old Fred. <laughs> um, but the, um, I found a study when I was prepping this, uh, this blog um, that's, that found that people like you more than you think they do. There is what's called a liking gap. And I'm not quite sure what that refers to, but the, the point here is that um, your impression of how people feel about you is way off base in a bad way. 
people like you more than you think they do. Hmm. The corollary, by the way, on that is they think about you a lot less than you fear they do. Yeah, isn't that? I think I just read that somewhere. The spotlight effect. Oh, that I haven't heard that. Yeah, I hadn't heard it either. But it was this sense that you know the spotlight is always shining on you, and everybody is aware of all the little things that um, you know you are preoccupied with. Do I have spinach in my teeth? And you know, something <laughs> is, you know, someone going to notice? You know, the stain on my shirt after lunch, or and. You know, the, the theory is that really nobody cares about you as much as you care about yourself. <laughs> Perfect example. When you're, on the, when you're on the beach on vacation, don't return emails and hmm. don't worry that people are thinking you're a gold bricker or someone who's not doing the job. I would get back from vacation thinking my boss was thinking that and he or she would say, oh, were you on vacation? And so take the bloody time off. You're, you're entitled to it. Another yeah. thing I think is important to focus on is I really, one of the things that I, that has made this new career, if you will, so special for me is really coming to understand in a first person way, how important it is to work in the service of other people. Mm. And I have found that when we do that, and focus, especially these days, there's so much focus on oneself. We have become such a self-conscious society. I blame the internet. I won't get on that soapbox right now, although stay tuned for the blog that I'm writing about the addictive nature of cell phones. But the point I'm trying to make, <laughs> I'm trying to make here is that when you really focus on how can I help another human being? It takes you out of your own head uh, and you think what it's a very, it's a much purer way of approaching the world because your focus is how can I help this person? How can I do the best that I can to help this person? Last two points on what do I tell my mentees about fighting imposter syndrome first? Check in with what I call your SEAL team. And I don't mean Navy SEALs. By SEAL, SEAL is an acronym, Shelley. For me, it's a group of supportive, energizing people who, to whom you're accountable and people who give you love. So mm -hmm. it's support, energy, accountability, and love, SEAL. And these are folks in my world whom I've recruited very, very intentionally, um, especially a mentor. Mentors, um, I, I talk quite a bit at firms about a mentor blueprint. How do you design a, a very good, effective mentoring program? But make sure your mentor is on your SEAL team. I have an exercise coach to whom I'm accountable and many other people um, sponsor an AA, for example. But check in with them because they know what you are like and they respect you. And it's tough love. They're not being obsequious. They're not kissing up to you. They know what you're like. And so when you start thinking, I'm just not as good as these people think. Boy, take it easy on them. You're disrespecting them mm. for their view about you. And then the, the last point here is show up. The toughest thing about imposter syndrome, fear of failure, is just getting off the couch, out of bed, out of your office, to go do the thing that you don't think you're good enough. Did that make sense? Mm -hmm. So you've got a court appointment. Go do it. You've got a deposition. Just go. It's going to work out a whole lot better than you fear. And, and one of the 
thought experiments I like that I used to do and still do actually sometimes is make a list of all of the, let's call it the top 10 list of really scary, and I won't put an expletive in there, but of really <laughs> scary things over the last 12 months. And then check off the ones, once you have your list, check off the ones that actually happened. And generally, there will be maybe one or two check marks. And the corollary, well, I sound like a scientist today. The corollary of that is, even if something bad happens, it's just not that bad. Yeah. That bad experience is going to be a file on a, on a shelf or in a server someday. Mm-hmm. So those are my top seven ways of dealing with imposter syndrome. And, you know, they don't always work, but the point is to be mindful that there are ways to fight back against it. Such great tips. And I think a lot of them sort of address the typical lawyer personality of, uh, you know, catastrophizing, you know, like you said, we're trained to think about risk and be managing risk and think about worst case scenario and all of that. So it's understandable, uh, given our training, that this is going to kind of creep into um, our our own views of ourselves and, and the work that we do. So I really like that idea of just that list saying, okay, yeah, of all the things, you, terrible things you thought were going to happen, how many really played out? And even if some of them may have, were they really that bad? Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Super, I, super. I, um, I have an anecdote that goes to that if we have time. Absolutely. I was, this is long ago, get, get in your DeLorean time machine with Doc and Marty and go back 20 plus years, 25 years. And I had one of these big, product failure cases. It was a bunch of oil and gas limited partnerships that had gone sideways or down. And so I was handling one of these cases. My kids were about eight and five, maybe even younger. And so I took them for a little mini vacation. Um, My uh, then wife was out of town or something. So we went to this really cool little bed and breakfast on the shore in Northern California, right on the beach. And this case, unfortunately, was looming large in my head. It was going to happen three weeks from then. And it was an important case in the sense it wasn't a big case, but it, um, it was one of many, many cookie cutter cases. So if we did poorly on it, it could be a bellwether that would be a bad thing. And so I was sweating, Shelly, I was sweating bullets over this mm-hmm. case. And I just didn't enjoy the weekend with my kids at all. Uh, it felt as if everything had shrunk down into sort of a dark tunnel vision thinking about this case. And uh, I should have been worried about it. It was, these were not very good cases and they, uh, we didn't have great defenses. So I went off, did the case. Uh, The defenses were even worse than I had feared. And what happened? Nothing bad happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, I called the in-house lawyer at my client and said, this thing's going bad. We're getting killed. And uh, bless his heart, he said, well, we better get it settled. And we did. And so five hours later, I was back home with this scary thing behind me. Mm-hmm. Nothing bad had happened. And I was left with a big, I think about almost like a, a keg of, or a barrel of toxic, almost like crude oil, mm-hmm. uh, just this toxic stress that I created that I never needed. And mm-hmm. it's easy, again, talking the talk. It's easy to say that. Yeah. But I'm a big fan of mindfulness. And by which I mean, keep these things in mind. They will mitigate some of these very difficult feelings. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this, your stress too is contagious. So yeah. if yeah, you're on the beach sweating away and worrying about something you have no control over, uh, yeah, others are going to pick that up as well uh, in, 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 in negative ways, yeah, uh, partic- which, particularly kids, right? Because they yeah, tend to oh, think yeah. everything's their fault. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure they felt that way on this, <laughs> but um, they weren't going to be second chair with me. One other point on this, and I'm glad you mentioned that about the stress that others feel uh, for the more senior lawyers out there. I think we all owe a duty to the people who report to us to help them with their imposter syndrome. And here's what I mean by that. We're always in such a rush that we're not thinking, we're not thinking that we should act in the service of these hardworking young lawyers who are reporting to us, who are doing so much on our cases. And here's an example. Let's say that um, I ask a uh, young lawyer on on a team that I'm working on, could you stop by at five o'clock to see me today with no detail on that? Well, if I'm a young associate, I'm going to be freaking out for the next, you know, eight hours. So wouldn't it be nicer to say, hey, John, you're doing a really good job on the case and uh, uh, wondering if you could swing by my office uh, around five today because I'd like to get your ideas on this strategy that I'm thinking about. Mm. So you've converted this kid from a non-productive, scared imposter, if at least if the name were Cam instead of John, if it were me, <laughs> to someone who's fired up, like, yeah, I'm doing well on this case. And, and uh, the person running it, this partner uh, whom I admire, wants to hear more from me. So treat treat the associates the way you wish, you know, golden rule, Fred Rogers, the way you wish you had been treated as an yeah. associate. Yeah. And it all builds on itself. Shelly, I think that I'm going to leave you with um, an analogy, the dog and cat thing that I mentioned earlier. I think there is a real tendency in our profession and frankly, others to allow the tail to wag the dog. And by that, I mean, Profits are the profits per partner. It's such a load start. It's um, something that guides this profession too much. But think of those as the tail of the dog. And that when the tail is trying to wag the dog, the dog gets unhealthy. Mm. If we can focus on the health of the dog, and the dog in this metaphor is the firm, the people in the firm, the people who are working hard. And create a happy environment, a mentally well environment where people are working in one another's service. Um, the, the tail will wag itself and the profits will come, probably more profits, um, uh, especially I'm finding that clients more and more these days are very, very focused on the mental health of their outside counsel. And they want happy, productive lawyers. They do not want to see revolving doors where unhappy lawyers on their cases are leaving and they're having to get somebody else up to speed. And so it's like flipping a switch. It's taking a new mindset. It doesn't have to be a hard thing to do, but uh, we're lurching towards it, I think, in this profession, but we've got quite a ways to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Such a good point. I mean, all of your points, Cam, are so uh, so helpful. One thing I was thinking about as you were talking about the senior lawyers or mentors, supervising lawyers, is there anything that um, they might be on the lookout for? How could they spot signs in less experienced lawyers of imposter syndrome? 
I mean, it seems like it's this kind of, it's more of an internal thing, but I'm wondering if there are any external indicators that maybe might be helpful for us to kind of keep a lookout for. There are, and it really varies from one person to another. Let me go back to the point about imposter syndrome not being technically a mental health disorder, uh, but having the potential both to uh, become a bigger problem if there are mental health conditions present. Just looking for signs of a mental health condition. I think training in how to recognize, how to go through the various criteria for diagnosing, let's say depression, uh, it's important to bear those in mind because depression can be a sign of imposter syndrome and vice versa. So here are some of what I think are the red flags. Anger where, you know, it's sort of the, the best defense is, a, or I'm not sure how that goes, the, the best offense is a good defense, whatever it is, but anger, lashing out when there's a, a mistake, pointing mm. fingers at each other, blaming other people, um, ultra competitiveness, um, bragging too much, um, telling what I call uh, your daily Christmas letter, bragging about yourself, or on the other side of that equation, uh, becoming a shrinking violet, uh, timidity, not wanting to take risks or uh, problems uh, keeping deadlines. We haven't talked much about what I call the um, perfection obsession, but it really exists. And perfectionism is one of the three outriders, the, the confidence killers, the first two being fear of failure and imposter syndrome. Right. But there's a real tendency to want to be perfect. And especially parents these days are really, really demanding perfection from their kids. And it's a fool's errand. Perfection is the human equivalent, really, I think, of infinity. And so when, if I have an associate who's not turning in work product on a timely basis, my thought goes to is that person feeling paralysis and inertia because of imposter syndrome? I'm not good enough. So I've got to make this brief or whatever it is perfect so that I will look better than I feel I am. Boy, that was a convoluted sentence, but hopefully, hopefully no, that made sense. Um, made total sense. Maybe people where, who won't volunteer on a big case who are in the background, not wanting to take a risk. Uh, because of fear of failure, or not wanting to walk into um, a social event. And it, it's, I have learned one of my biggest joys is meeting new people. And I never used to be this way. But as I've conquered my imposter syndrome, um, I walk in and, uh, and I put out my hand, I say, Hey, I'm Cam, tell me about yourself. Mm-hmm. And you're off and running. And uh, I haven't, I do some summer associate training. I'm going to be doing, I think, a lot more this coming summer, but just giving people the confidence to walk in, not be obnoxious and pushy, um, but just say, hey, you know, I'm Cam. Nice to see you here. I'm glad you joined us and tell me a little bit about yourself. And then, you know, share some personal stuff. I (laughs) I was at a, um, a lawyer convention some time ago. But I was being a lawyer and doing the kind of work that you and I are now talking about. I was wearing two hats. And so we were in this huge conference, one of those huge conventions down in Las Vegas, one of those monster hotels. And uh, 
So I thought, you know what? I don't want to try and get law business. I've been doing this forever. I'm just going to talk to people about genuine stuff. And so I'm walking around the room and I'm talking with folks and, you know, we're having nice conversations and people ask me what I'm doing. And I said, well, I'm a lawyer, but I also give these talks on mental health. And I had at least five people after we talked and they shared some of their mental health challenges with me. And several people said, you know, this was by far the most interesting, engaging conversation that I've had at this conference. And it's because we're sharing our stuff and being brave. It's brave to share your challenges and your vulnerabilities. I've done it a kajillion times, Shelly, whether it's in a formal CLE setting or one-on-one with mentees or sitting on an airplane next to someone and telling them what I do. And I don't know that I've ever been disrespected for doing this. People Mm -hmm. say, that's cool. Way to go. You've got sobriety. Or, boy, thanks for telling me it was brave of you to share that. And it gives me the courage to share. So I think one of the takeaways, and this does relate to imposter syndrome, is to like yourself enough to share about yourself and to share. You don't have to share all your deep, dark secrets or, you know, Some people are more willing to share private stuff than others. Just have a little bit of self-confidence, not a lot, but just enough to keep the ball rolling and um, to realize Fred Rogers likes me just the way I am. (laughs) And Fred Rogers is never wrong. No, he was one of a kind, wasn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's beautiful. Oh, wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your tips and and your story with us and, and, you know, showing how um, it really does benefit everyone when you show vulnerability and you sort of bravely share your experiences with others because most of us have gone through something similar and it sure feels good to, to hear that, to feel that we're not alone. So um, I really thank you for that. Um, I'm just wondering if there's anything that we didn't touch on, Cam. No, I don't think so. I think we've covered certainly what I what I wanted to talk about today. I think that in my case, it really doesn't take bravery anymore. For me, it's an honor and a privilege, uh, and frankly, a blessing to have a lived experience to share with other people because it's given me the opportunity to work in the service of others. And so I'm very, very grateful to you for having given me another opportunity to do just that. So uh, the pleasure has been all mine. And uh, thank you so much for having me. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you. That's lovely. And I'm just wondering how listeners can learn more about you and all the wonderful work that you're doing. How can they reach out to you? And um, if you have any resources that are available? Yeah. The main source of data about me is, or information is that website. I mentioned again, it's www.stouthearthearth.org. And some of the things I mentioned are, are blog posts that I've written in the blog. My blog is called Light at Sea, and uh, there's a tab for it in my website. And um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm so always so welcoming of people who want to reach out to me and people do that. Mm. And um, I had one, one guy actually, now that we're talking about imposter syndrome, last point, um, I did a talk with a couple of, of uh, people whom I admire greatly for practicing law Institute on, on this topic. 
and uh, really, you know, PLI gets a very wide uh, distribution. And out of the blue, about a month later, I got a text from, I won't say who this was, but it was a very, very well-respected lawyer at a huge firm. This, this person has a national reputation. And the, the message was, Cam, thank you so much for sharing that. I have so much trouble with imposter syndrome. And I'm thinking, well, if this guy does, mm-hmm. uh, then who doesn't? And so anyway, I love to talk with people. My phone number, I'll just say it. People want to jot this down. It's 415-595-5409. And my um, email is just stout.cameron, last name, dot first name at Gmail. So hope to hear from you guys. Always happy to talk. Fantastic. Yes. And I really, really encourage people uh, to reach out because you're so just so easy to talk to, Cam. So thank you so much. Uh, Really, really appreciate you taking so much time to speak with us. Thank you, Shelley. Take good care. Thanks, you too. Thanks for joining me today on the XL Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com.